Thank you. I know some of you probably feel like this week you, you've been in those, uh, in that dry and thirsty land where it feels like God and all His blessings are far away. You kind of feel, some of you maybe have felt spiritually parched this week. Kind of dried up, you know? But I want to urge you again to run to the Savior because where the Savior is, rivers of pleasure pour forth that sustain His people. The Lord knows how to turn the desert into springs of water. And He does that wherever His Son is manifest. So, we need Jesus. We need Jesus. What a good thing it was to be reminded of that. We're going to be reminded of in the text of it in the text that we have, which is uh, Matthew 11. So turn there if you would. Matthew, first gospel, first book in the New Testament, chapter 11. We're studying together through the gospel of Matthew and have come to this chapter. In fact, we've come almost to the end of it. Chapter 11, I know we noted last week, is the beginning of a new section in the book of Matthew that runs from chapter the beginning of chapter 11 to the end of chapter 13. It's one of those five sections that each concludes with a very similar sort of repetition of, of uh, what Matthew records, something along the lines of now when Jesus had made an end of these sayings. And he says that five times. This is the beginning of this. Um, I'm sorry, the beginning of a third section now um, in chapter 11, running the the end of chapter 13. And in this section, if there's one thing that's kind of an overarching theme, I think it is that there are contrasting responses to Jesus' ministry. So he's going to give us a sampling of the different ways that people respond to Jesus, not everybody responded the same way, and he's going to. And then, chapter thirteen, he's going to illustrate those different responses with a series of parables, and talk about the way those differing responses relate to the coming of his kingdom. And so, we'll see all of that unfold as we work our way, I think, through these chapters. But um, we see that these contrasting responses even played out in this very uh, text for today, which encompasses verses 20 to 30, if you're looking at your Bible. That's the text I've chosen for today. There are basically two paragraphs there. Um, The first paragraph, verses 20 to 24, is a response to Jesus that brings a pronouncement of woe. The second is a response that brings rest. So we're going to see, even in this text today, these contrasting, very different responses to Jesus' ministry. And uh, may the Lord use this to cause our own hearts to be opened up before the Lord and to cause our eyes to be lifted to the Savior. All right, so we're going to read just the first paragraph first, and then we'll come back and read the second in a few moments. So Matthew 11 beginning in verse 20. Then he, that is Jesus, began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, 
it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. This is a response to Jesus that brings a pronouncement of woe. Woe, of course, that little word, our English word, W-O-E, is a prediction of utter calamity, utter destruction. And it is a common uh, word used among the prophets. Think of the you're reading through the Bible and reading through some of the prophets and they pronounce, woe upon this group of people, woe upon that nation of people, because those peoples had turned their back on God and had gone on to live in their sin. They had rejected God. And so the prophets pronounced woes upon them, great destruction and calamity that would come their way, including, very interestingly, woes upon Tyre and Sidon, these very first two um, towns that he mentioned, not the first two Israelite towns, but the first two non-Israelite cities that he mentions. Woes were pronounced on those cities by the Old Testament prophets. I want you to see three things in this section here, in this paragraph. And the first is that this denunciation by our Lord was pronounced upon people who'd had the greatest exposure to Jesus. This pronouncement of judgment came upon those who had the most revelation. These cities that he mentions, verse number 20 says, these cities were the ones where most of his mighty works had been done. So Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum, these are all towns and cities on the northern shores of the Sea of Galilee, which is where Jesus' ministry was concentrated. He did most of His teaching, most of His ministry there along the northern part of the Sea of Galilee, where these towns were. These people in these towns had the greatest opportunity to see His mighty works. Bethsaida was the original home of some of the apostles themselves. Peter and Andrew and Philip came from there. Capernaum was Jesus' sort of headquarters where He based His ministry many times. And so the people of Capernaum had heard much of Christ's teaching. He had taught in their synagogue. They had seen His mighty works. And I want you to think for a moment... Right now, right now, think about all the exposure that you've had to the things of God. You live in the United States of America, which has had an abundance of preaching, teaching, revelation from God, revivals that God has sent. You live in a land that is a land of liberty where the gospel is not officially opposed in any way, where the gospel is free to be broadcast on the radio and on the television and in published in books and proclaimed on the street corners in many places. You live in a place that you have been given such access to the knowledge of Christ. Think about the access that you have been given to the Bible. How many people around the world have very little access or have had very little access to the Bible, especially if you go not just right now as we sit in this particular moment in history, but as you go back in time and think about how people longed to come to a place where they could actually hear someone reading them the Word of God where they long to be in a place where they could possibly maybe see a copy of the Scriptures, or even perhaps to have the Bible in their own tongue. Think of how many people, now literally, think about this, how many people were cut off in relative darkness from the revelation of God 
because of their limited access to the gospel and the word of God, the Bible. Think about all of the blessings you've been given. You have a Bible in your lap right now. You have a Bible on your phone. You have books about the word of God. You have access to commentaries and study Bibles. You have access to so many ways to come to know the Lord. You have access to Bible teaching and preaching. Some of you, some of you were even placed in the providence of God into a Christian family. And your mother or your father or your grandmother or your spouse is a believer. And they have communicated to you the word of God and they have gotten on their knees and they have prayed for you. How many of you are sitting where you are because someone who's related to you was praying for you? I wonder. I wonder what heaven will reveal about the benefits that came to you because God put you providentially in a place where you saw much of His uh, revelation, where you heard much of His Word. Think about how many sermons you've sat under. How many hours have you sat in these chairs? Listen to sermon after sermon, or listen to sermons online, or listen to sermons in other assemblies that you've been a part of. How much of the Word of God that you have gone through verse by verse, word by word, how often you have been compelled by preachers to examine the very words of the Holy God. Think about all that you have been given. These are the people that Jesus speaks to in this paragraph. People who have had the greatest exposure to Him. And I want you to see, secondly, that this denunciation is grounded in their unwillingness to do one thing. What is it? Take a look at the text again. What is that one thing? That's it. Repent. Because they did not, you see it there? Because they did not repent. Now, a couple weeks ago, we took note that the preaching of repentance was a peculiar emphasis of John the Baptist as he prepared the way for the Lord. But we also said that you cannot separate the preaching of repentance from the preaching of forgiveness. You can't preach that Christ is gracious and good and loving without also preaching the need to turn from sin, to change your mind and your heart about Christ. These two things must always go together or you do not have the gospel. You don't have the gospel if it's only bad news. But you also don't have the gospel if there's no repentance that is mingled with and is the foundation for the forgiveness. Repentance is preparatory to following Christ. Matthew's very first description of Jesus' message, Jesus Himself in Matthew 4 verse 17 was, Repent. This is Jesus now. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repentance is a change of mind. It's a change of heart. Repentance is more than just a, an interest in the things of God or even a zeal for Christ, a zeal for the Christian religion. Because, and I say that because of this, that there were people in the gospel accounts who apparently were very zealous about Jesus, but who in the end proved not to be true believers. Remember, John even uses, John the gospel writer, even uses the language that many believed on him and began to follow him, but then as he continued to preach and teach and confront people, many of them ended up turning away. 
And Jesus said this, My true disciples, and this is not another kind of Christian, you know, a discipleship level that's beyond a, a basic believer level. True believers, true disciples, are the ones who continue to hear my words, to continue to submit to them. They, they don't come to a place where they are hardened in their sin or unbelieving or angry with God and they turn away because of some hard thing in their life or that the Lord has said. They continue to follow Him. Repentance involves sorrow. It involves self-humiliation. Look at verse 21. I say this about repentance. It involves sorrow for sin. It involves a willingness to humble yourself and say, woe is me, I am a sinner. That is repentance. He says in verse 21, the end of the verse, that this is something that is accompanied with sackcloth and ashes, as it were. Which is a response that people would give to their sinfulness and to the brokenness in the world that sinfulness causes. Repentance is coming to a point of saying, I don't, sin is repugnant to me, Lord, I don't want it. I, I, I find myself attracted to it, and yet I don't want to continue in it. God, deliver me from this. Humbling ourselves and sorrowing over our sin. It is the opposite of the behavior of the people of Capernaum. Rather than humbling themselves at the confrontation of this teacher, they emboldened themselves. They declared their self-righteousness and their self-sufficiency. They were lifted up in pride that did not want to say, this is wrong and I'm, I'm a sinner. And, and you see, Jesus says that in verse 23. He says to Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You keep yourselves lifted up. You, don't, you will not humble yourselves before me. You will be exalted. Will you be, he says, exalted to heaven? It reminds me of the language of God about the tower of what? Tower of Babel. We will make a name for ourselves and be exalted up to heaven. There was not a humility. There was a pride and a self-sufficiency that was behind that first great rebellious city of man. And it reminds us of the later Babylon built on the ashes of the former. That great city of ancient days that Isaiah speaks to in Isaiah chapter 14, verse 13, when he says to Babylon of his day, you have said in your heart, I will ascend up to heaven. Capernaum, Jesus says, is in that same mold of Babel and Babylon. Capernaum has become the new Babylon. The kind of people who will not lay themselves low before the king confess their sin, and plead for mercy, but who say, we're fine, thank you, we're doing okay, we're good, this is the way we're going to be. They refuse to humble themselves and to repent. Repentance says, I've rebelled, I have refused to submit I have wanted to be the God of my own life. Like, uh, like you remember uh, Adam and Eve in the garden who decided that they wanted to be in charge of their, their own life. It is a gospel irony. Listen to this. It is a gospel irony that the first step on the road to being vindicated before God or being justified before God is to admit my guilt. <laughs> Isn't that an irony? The first step in being vindicated before God is the admission of my utter guilt. Think of the Pharisee and the tax collector in the temple. And the Pharisee came and he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, yeah, I thank you that 
You know, I'm not perfect, but I'm not like other men, like those wicked sinners over there. That's what self-righteousness always does. A spirit of non-repentance always looks at other people and says, well, at least I'm not as bad as him. I'm not doing as badly as her. I'm okay. But remember the man who received mercy? He's the one who went into the temple and he couldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven and he beat on his chest and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And, and the Bible says he went out from that place, what? Justified. He was vindicated. That's why I say it's a great irony. Here's the man who has nothing to vindicate himself, but God in the end says he is justified. He is justified because he's humbled himself before me. That is the absolute key to justification. It is a humble, repentant faith. God and His promises in the Lord Jesus Christ. On the other hand, you think of somebody like the rich young ruler who came to Jesus. Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. And the man asked a question. Well, who's my neighbor? If we want to talk about having to love my neighbor, let's try to define who neighbor is so I can, you know, so I can... uh, Make sure, you know, I can prove that I've done my duty. And the Bible says, do you know what the Bible says was his motivation behind that question? It says, he was wanting to justify himself, right? Here's a man who says, hey, who's my neighbor? All right, that's my neighbor. Well, I've been nice to that guy. I've been nice to my neighbor. Now, if you define neighbor in a different way, well, then... You know, well, that's a, that's a spat we have. But, but he was wanting to justify himself. I've done what I'm supposed to do. I'm pretty good. I haven't loved everybody, but, you know, I've loved, uh, I've loved the people that are, that are you know, my, my fellow Jews and my, my, uh, my kin, people who are, are pretty much like me in most ways. I've been good to them. The difference is, the one guy wants to justify himself, that guy is the guy that gets pronounced woes upon his head. But the guy who humbles himself, doesn't lift himself up, but he humbles himself and he says, I'm a sinner, be merciful to me, that guy is, in the end, justified. Romans chapter 3 says, the law of God comes to us. What's the purpose of the law? One of the great purposes of the law of God is to shut us up. To stop every mouth, the Bible says. God gave you the law so you could see how sinful you are and stop trying to justify yourself. I'm pretty good. I'm okay. I love God. I do good things. Look, I do lots more good things than that guy over there. This is, a, this is a spirit of pride that will, I fear, bring the woes of God down upon our heads. Brothers and sisters, it is the spirit of humility, of acknowledgement of our lowliness that is the beginning of the opening of the door of mercy. This denunciation was pronounced upon people for their unwillingness to do one thing, And that was repent. And thirdly, I want you to see that this denunciation was intensified by a comparison with the judgment on unenlightened heathen cities. You see, he says in verse 21, take a look at the text again. Note the the comparison here that highlights this. You see it in the Bible, verse 21? He talks to Chorazin and Bethsaida and he says, if the mighty works that were done in your towns were done in the ancient Phoenician, Philistine cities of Tyre and Sidon, if the works that I did in your towns were done there, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it'll be more bearable for them than it will be for you. And then he turns to Capernaum, the middle of verse 23 now, He turns to Capernaum and says, if the mighty works that had been done in you had been done in Sodom, we know that ancient city, right? That namesake 
of ungodliness. If the mighty works done in Capernaum had been done in Sodom, it would have still remained, not fallen under the fiery judgment of God. Until this day, it would still be there, Jesus says. But I tell you that it will be more... Listen to this. This is, a, this is a, just amazing. This put the fear of God in me this week. It'll be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than it would be for the people of Capernaum. Capernaum was the place of Jesus' greatest testimony. Sodom was the place of God's greatest judgment. And yet there is a greater judgment, he said, that will come upon Capernaum. From which we learn two things. One, that God is sovereign in where He shows His mercy. He doesn't owe us anything. The towns of Tyre, Sidon, Sodom received less light than these towns, but still they were judged for their ungodliness. We also learn this, secondly, that there is a greater judgment for those who have received more light if they will not repent. There's a greater degree of accountability with a greater knowledge of Christ. Now, put that into the context of how much you have heard about Jesus. How much you've been exposed to Christ. How many times a preacher has pleaded with you to have a heart of faith toward Christ. How many times someone has gotten on their knees and prayed for you how many times you've opened the Bible and read. You, you put this kind of, of um, uh, exaggeration, this kind of uh, enlargement of these woes in the context of those who have received great knowledge of God. May there be no one in these services who... The Lord will say to you one day, I sent you preachers who exhorted you and friends who pleaded with you and family who prayed for you and a Bible that informed you and a Holy Spirit that convicted you and still you would not repent. Depart from me. I never knew you. May there be no one like that. But thank the Lord, that's not the only response in this passage. Amen? And there's another one. And this is sweet indeed, verses 25 to 30. Let's read the second paragraph now. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Once again, in this paragraph, Jesus does three things. First, He gives thanks to God the Father, for both hiding and revealing the truth. Do you see that in the text? All right, everybody look at the Bible. Are you still with me? Hello, nod your head if you are. All right, all this comes from the Bible, right? Okay, just want to make sure. All right, so we want the, the contours of the sermon to follow the contours of the text. The first thing that Jesus does is He gives thanks to God the Father for both concealing and revealing the truth. I want to challenge you about that. Do you know 
that God actually obscures the truth for some people? That might kind of sound um, sound wrong, maybe, to some of us. Um, but it is a truth that's found in many places in the Bible. Um, God tells His prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 10, Isaiah, listen to, the, listen to the Lord's instructions. Isaiah, make the heart of the people dull and make their ears heavy and blind their eyes. That was Isaiah's commission. Now make no mistake, listen to me, God doesn't do that to people who are looking intently for Him, trying to see Him, or listening carefully, trying to hear His words. Because, for one thing, apart from His grace, there are no such people. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks after God. No, God is not looking down and blinding people who are trying to see and deafening people who are trying to listen. God is looking down at a world full of people who are determined not to listen, not to hear. And He says, if you will not listen, you will will not be able to listen. He punishes sinful humanity in many cases by obscuring the truth. Now let me ask, who are those people from whom God hides the truth? Who are those people that God hides from? Verse 25 tells you. From the quote-unquote wise, the quote-unquote understanding. (laughs) The people who say, yeah, we've we've got it. We know. We understand. We've We've got it all figured out. People who think that they know, which is the the very case with with the cities that he preached to. He came to them. They were lifted up in their pride. They were not willing to humble themselves. They said, no, no, we're good. We're good. We've got this figured out. He came. Jesus says, God, you have... This is the way he viewed what was happening in these cities, this rejection that he was facing. He said, God, you have wisely righteously, and in a holy way, you have obscured those people's eyes, those people who thought that they were wise and understanding, but in the end, they were wise in their own eyes. They were rejecting of God's authority. They were like Adam and Eve in the garden when Eve looked up at the fruit of the tree and she saw that it was desirable to make one what? What did she want to do? She wanted not to live by every word that came out of the mouth of God, but to make her own rules, to decide for herself what was right and wrong. In other words, it's the same basic, fundamental sinfulness that's at the root of all of our rebellion against God, a desire to not humble ourselves before God and let Him dictate to us how to live, but a desire to say, no, I want to be in charge of my life. I don't think that's wrong. How can the Bible say that's wrong? So I'm just going to decide that it's okay. I'm just going to do it. It's, it's a lifting of myself up above the Lord, of taking of that fruit to make myself wise. Jesus says as much to these people. These people think that they're wise. They're, they're the, quote, understanding ones. But God has really obscured His truth for those people. Well, if those are the people for whom God hides the truth, then who are the people to whom God reveals Himself? Look at the end of verse 25. Here's the opposite. Who does He reveal Himself to? What does it say? Little children. To little children. In chapter 10, verse 42, he had already, we saw this a couple weeks ago, he referred to his disciples as little ones, little children. 
In other words, there's two kinds of people in the world. People who think that they're wise without God and people who are just as dependent on God as little children. You know, you go to a little child and you tell him something and he's going to generally what? He's going to believe it. You say, this is so. Your kid's going to say, okay, dad. Okay, mom. There's just a humility, a a dependency, a, a, a sense of someone greater, wiser than he that characterizes all of the people to whom God reveals himself. He will reveal himself to people like that. That's what Jesus is saying. Little children, dependent on others. Jesus says in verse 26, this is God's will. It is God's will to hide from the proud, unrepentant, self-reliant, self-sufficient, and to reveal Himself to the humble, repentant, needy sinners. But in addition to acknowledging that God is the one who conceals and reveals. Jesus does something else in this paragraph, and that is, secondly, he asserts his own sovereign role in this revelation. Look at verse 27. Notice how he not only gives thanks to God the Father for revealing himself to the humble and hiding himself from those who aren't humble, but he acknowledges, he asserts his own role. He says, verse 27, all, the, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone, look at this, to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. In other words, back in verse 25, he's giving thanks to God the Father for revealing Himself. It was your gracious will. But now in verse 27, he says, it's the Son who chooses to reveal the Father. What is the Father's choice in verse 25 is the Son's choice in verse 27, which is a powerful testimony to the oneness of the Father and the Son and the working of the Trinity in bringing about our salvation. Jesus says, to me, it has been given to reveal God or to conceal God. And of course, Jesus did as much when he taught in parables. Remember, the disciples came to him and said, Jesus, why do you teach in stories? I mean, we like the stories. They're really good. I mean, I'm reading between the lines there. But we don't always get the point, right? Have you ever read a parable and you first time reading it through, you were like, I don't get it. <laughs> I don't quite get the point until you started really thinking about it more and started listening to other scriptures and started opening up your heart to the Lord, started really letting Christ speak into that. Um, through everything. Jesus says, okay, here's why I speak in parables. Because my intent is to conceal the truth for some people. But to you, he said, it is given to know these things. And so he goes on and he continues to explain and he continues to apply this parable for them. He opens up their minds. There are those people who come to him to listen for a little while because they're intrigued by who he is and what he does. And then there are those who continue to hear everything that he has to say. And those are the people to whom he really opens up himself. It is the Lord Jesus who is given authority to do that. The lesson here for us is simply this. Do not presume that you can come to God and come to know God whenever you want. You can just say, you know what? I'm not ready to repent right now. Maybe I'll come back to God later. Listen to me. The Bible says, it is up to God to whom He will reveal Himself. It is up to the Savior to whom He will reveal Himself. Don't say, well, I'll come back to God later. You may never, ever come to a place where God is willing to work with your heart again. Every one of us ought to be fearful of ever getting to that place where we've gotten so cold so hardened to God that God obscures the Word for us rather than revealing Himself. But while Jesus teaches that the revelation of God is in fact a matter of election, 
He also issues, look at this now, in the text, he also issues a universal invitation to come and find rest in him. This is one of the sweetest passages in the scripture to humble, repentant people. Look what he says. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. How many people have, been, have had their souls awakened, I wonder, by that passage? Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's a universal invitation. All, all who are heavy laden, all who hear my words and humble themselves, come. Somebody might say, well, I don't know. Am I one to whom Christ chooses to reveal the Father or not? Am I one of the elect or am I not? How do I know I'm so filled with anxiety about that? And I understand and I sympathize, but I want to tell you this. If you would come, you'd be one of the elect. Because the invitation is as wide as the world. All of you, he says, come to me. As many as are heavy laden, And the simplicity of this is just so sweet. What does he tell you to do? Come. Come. Come to me. Say, I want to be saved. What do I have to do? How hard is it? What kind of hurdles do I have to jump over? What kind of ladder do I have to climb? How many good works do I have to do? Jesus says, come. Come to me. Come, and I will give you rest. There's just a beautiful simplicity in that, isn't there? And it is personal. Jesus doesn't say, come and learn these ten rules. He doesn't say, come and do these five things faithfully. He says, come to me. You're not coming to a set of intellectual propositions about the existence of God. You're coming to Christ. That's what saves a man, coming to Christ. Just say, Jesus, I come. I just come to you. Where else will I go? And if you come, he says, you will be received. There's only one requirement to come. There's only one qualification on who may come. I said it's universal, but it's universal in the sense that it is qualified in this one way. Come to me all you what? All of you who labor and are heavy laden. In other words, there is only one requirement to come to Christ, and that is an acknowledgement of your neediness. An acknowledgement of your brokenness. An acknowledgement of your sinfulness, that you are weighted down by your sin and all of the cares of this world that spring from sin. And you you feel the weight of this on your shoulders, and that makes you run to Jesus. We sing a, a hymn that says, Let not conscience make you linger from coming to Christ. Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness, spiritual fitness, fondly dream. All the fitness He requires is to feel your need of Him. Come to Me, He says, all who labor and are heavy laden, and there is such a blessing held out to them. I will give you what? Rest. Isn't that what your soul longs for? Israel longed to be in the land of rest. Rest from her enemies. Rest from oppression. Christ is your rest. He's your rest from sin. He's your rest from guilt. He's your rest from condemnation and judgment that rightly falls from the throne of God upon sinners. Christ is your rest. 
He's your land of plenty. Run to Him. Come to Him and you will find rest for your souls. And then he says in verse 29, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. A yoke is a shoulder harness that a man would put on his shoulders to pull some heavy thing or maybe put on an animal to help pull his plow or, or a long bar that he would put on his shoulders with a heavy weight on each side to help him to carry those weights around the fields. This yoke is a symbol, not just a, a physical thing, but a symbol throughout the Bible of toil and oppression and servitude. And Jesus says, come to me and take my yoke. He talked about another yoke of sorts in chapter 23. We'll see it when we get to it. Verse 4, Jesus said of the Pharisees, remember the Pharisees in His day? Um, He said, they tie heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift one finger to move them. And the Lord came to set them free from all of those Pharisaical traditions that had been added to the law of God. But He did not come to tell us the law itself doesn't matter. He didn't come to say, it doesn't matter how you live. Cast off all yokes. Just be free and go any which way you want to go. He said, take what? Take my yoke upon you. But His yoke, ironically, will not bring greater toil, but His yoke will bring what? It'll bring rest. Isn't that the opposite of what we think? I say, I want to get rid of my yoke, my burden, all of the afflictions that I'm facing, all of my sin and my guilt. I want to get rid of the law that, that, that keeps causing me to, to fall. I want to get rid of the demands that are too hard. I can't keep them. And he says, take my yoke and you'll find rest. But this is the kind of upside-down kingdom that Jesus proclaimed. If you want to live, you should lay down your life. If you lose your life for my sake, you will find it. Take up your cross and follow me. And Here he says, take my yoke upon you and you will find rest for your souls. Why is it rest? Because, listen to me, because He Himself bore the burden of your sin upon His shoulders. He bore the brokenness of all of the things in the world that sin brings about. He bore them on His shoulders. He bore it to Calvary. Behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon His shoulders. And so now we can say, It is no longer I who live, but Christ who, what? Lives in me. And now we say with the Apostle John, His commandments are not burdensome anymore. Because He's in me carrying this burden that I have, this burden to be righteous before God. He's shouldering it in me and through me and for me And so now I say as a Christian, His burden, His his commandments are not burdensome. I've taken His yoke, but I found it to be rest. So brothers, sisters, men and women, listen to me, everyone, everyone here today, leave behind your slavery to sin and take the yoke of Jesus. Because he's a master who's meek and lowly. Sin is an awful taskmaster. But Christ came to give you rest. Imagine a master who doesn't just command you to do the work, but he gets down there and works in you and with you for your mutual joy forever. That's Blessing that Jesus brings. Come, ye souls, by sin afflicted. Come, bowed with fruitless sorrow down. By the broken law convicted. 
through the cross, behold the crowd. Look to Jesus. Mercy flows from Him alone. Take His easy yoke and wear it. Love will make obedience sweet. Christ will give you strength to bear it. And while His wisdom guides your feet, guides you safe to glory where His ransom captives meet. Blessed are the eyes that see Him. Blessed are the ears that hear His voice. Blessed are the souls that trust Him. And in Him alone rejoice. His commandments then become their happy choice. Sweet as home to pilgrims weary. Light to newly opened eyes full of springs in deserts dreary is the rest His cross supplies. All who taste it shall to rest immortal rise. Look to Him today and just say, Jesus, I come. Jesus, I come. Would you pray with me? Oh Lord, please look down and find and create by the convicting power of the Holy Spirit good soil for these words to find a home in. I pray that you would break up the hard ground. I pray that you would humble these hearers so that they might be given a revelation. We pray that you would show the futility and the emptiness of any lie and any sin that holds them back from faith, holds them back from your Son. Please work in our hearts now. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. With heads bowed.